Good morning, good morning. It's good to see everybody and uh, good to see so many people well. Um, believe it or not, this week there's been a buzzsaw of sickness to rip through, rip through our people. Um, Ashley Rastatter, our children's ministry director, she's at home and uh, they have been, they've been buzzsawed quite thoroughly. And uh, man, we've had stuff going on in our house this week too. Like we had, we were supposed to have a lunch at our house today for the Guatemala missions team and we moved that to another location. We were supposed to have a Super Bowl party at our house tonight, and we said, that's not going to happen. So, we, you know, um, yeah, it's been, it's been one of those weeks. Uh, several families are down. So if you're here, that means you're well, I hope, and uh, we're super glad you're here. But if anybody does need to throw up, if you would leave the building now, um, don't do it here. Just go in the parking lot, and after you do, just keep on walking to your car. Um, we'll never know, and therefore we won't get the sickness that you brought in here uh, with you. Hey, a couple things. I wanted to show you these. They're on the back table. This is our new packet of children that we get to sponsor in Guatemala through Food for the Hungry. Uh, several of these uh, went home with people last week, and we have some new kids sponsored. Our team leaves in uh, about a month uh, to go down to Guatemala, and they'll get to meet every child that we sponsor. And for those who are on the team, if you're sponsoring a child, you get to meet them too. Uh, there is that lunch today that will be at the Nesvich's house. It's quite a mouthful. Um, it's going to be there today instead of our house, so if you're on the mission team, uh, make sure you go to that. Um, there's that. We also have discipleship groups that we're filling, filling the, the coffers with people, and then we're going to populate those as soon as we have enough people that have signed up for time slots. So if you want to get in on one of those, you're going to meet once, to tw once or twice a month. Again, I said once. Again, my grandmother is in me. Goodness, once or twice a month, um, and just, man, you're going to talk about the Bible, you're going to talk about what God's teaching you, you're going to talk about sin, and you're going to talk about people that need Jesus that are around you. That's it. It's going to be super simple. It's going to be people to people, two to three people per group. And if you want to do that, um, that's one way in which we do our best to disciple one another and uh, let the Jesus who's spoken to me speak to you. Um, but it's not my idea, it's his. So if you want to get in on that, make sure you fill out that form. We've got, it's in the weekly newsletter, all of that fun stuff. I think that's all the major announcements I have. If I missed any, feel free just to write me a letter this week, and I'll be sure to mention them next week. All right, yeah, uh, that's kind of like contact your local congressman. So anyway, seriously, I will. Like, if I miss something, I'll be glad to, to do it. But don't write me a letter. Just talk to me afterwards. Uh, we're back in the book of Mark today, believe it or not, year and a half in. Um, the finish line is, is in sight. Uh, it's been fun. Um, today, today is just like, man, an inordinately thick passage for Mark. Uh, the way that Mark writes, Mark was a very much event-driven gospel writer, uh, the way that he was kind of inspired to do this. Um, in this particular text, we can find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics. And, and it's kind of, if we look at the hour-by-hour -hour occurrence, where we are in this, we're in the kind of the passion narrative, uh, which is just the final week of Jesus, Jesus walking towards the cross. Uh, we know that he's going to hang, he's going to die on our behalf because we could not fix ourselves. The shedding of his blood was necessary for the remission of my sin, your sin, for those who believe. Uh, we're not going to skirt around that. It's painful, but it's victorious at the same time. And so, like we talked about the past few weeks, over the next couple of passages, things are moving very, very quickly. Um, and it seems like it would take weeks, but it's really, in reality, like 24 hours uh, from when we started two weeks ago until we see Jesus uh, hanging on the cross. And today would seem like kind of a, the calm before the storm, this particular passage. And, and if we read it in the sense that there's not a lot of moving parts, maybe we could say that. But what we do need to see is that, that in this particular place, and the reason I say that it's interesting for Mark, is because there's, there's so much subtext going on, so to speak. 
and not just speaking from a literary perspective, but things that are, that are going on beneath the surface, like so many things that are not action-driven or, 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 or step-taken or things like that, but just a lot going on. And this is one of these passages that if we, if we wanted to spend, like I said, there's several things that we've talked about in a week that we could spend four to six weeks on. This would be one of those texts, but today we're going to do it in one. Um, and so we want to look at the things that are being said we also want to look at the things that are not being said, why they're being said, and so our application is going to come basically in something that we know, a way that we feel, and then in something that we do. Uh, last week was very much a, a mental exercise as far as the application. This week it's going to be something that we know, something that we feel, and something that we do. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Mark chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 32. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are always Bibles on the back table. You're more than welcome to take one of those, make it yours, write in it, highlight it, do whatever you want. Um, but it'll also be on the screen for us this morning. Um, and I say that I say this every week, but I love this passage. Um, like I do. Like I love this passage. Uh, this is one that that I've spent like personally a great deal of time in this one and in Matthew and in Mark. I mean in Luke as well. Um, and just trying to, man, because it it is just it, it's like a porterhouse kind of a thing. Um, if we're looking at meals, like it's thick and there's a lot there. And if we do it right, it will take us some time. But today we're gonna we're gonna try to do it in a. The time that we have left. So uh, let's, let me pray, and then we're going to jump in and read. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you so much for Jesus today, that through him and for him and to him, we can celebrate, be known by you, make you known, um, and God, that, that we can know you too in all of that. God, thank you for this word today. Um, thank you for the text that is here. I pray that we do not add to or take away anything uh, that you do not intend, and Father, that it would be your voice that speaks the loudest. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us for those who have been bound to you, and God, thank you that you're not done. We love you. Amen. So Mark chapter 14, verse 32 through 42. Uh, we'll, we'll jump in and read. So it says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed, that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, or look, my betrayer is at hand. So over the past few weeks, we've We've been looking at these times in which Jesus has sat with the disciples, walked with the disciples, and now we actually find Jesus in a position that we really haven't seen him in. We've seen him pray, we've heard him pray, we've seen him go alone to pray, but now he's actually prostrate, laying face down on the ground. Matthew says that he fell on his face and he prayed. And we also see something else that kind of sticks out, like we've always seen a, a victorious, cheerful Jesus. Uh, we've seen a Jesus that in spite of 
uh, people coming after him and doing things like he's been like this joyful savior that we've always noticed. But in this particular passage, not only do we see him face down prostrate before the God, the father of him and of us, but we also see words like deeply distressed, troubled, uh, pain, like an inner turmoil kind of a thing. Uh, This passage can speak volumes if we're listening because one thing that it confronts for us is it confronts the idea that Jesus was a robot. Like before we even get into the line-by-line, verse-by-verse idea, like I think that there are times that we think like Jesus came and he came to live perfectly and he came to die tragically and raise victoriously and there was never like a hiccup in that or a chance for things to go bad. And granted, there was not a chance because Jesus was going to do what he was going to do, but a robot he was not. We see in the very beginning of Jesus' ministry that he was led away. He was tempted for 40 days by Satan. Temptation would not be there if Satan didn't think for maybe just a minute that he could make him swerve, make him veer. He did not because Jesus is Jesus, fully God, fully man, fully capable to resist, but temptation was there. And in this case, a lot of times tradition is going to say this was the last temptation of Christ. In this place, we see that there is there's wavy water. There's rough water beneath the surface that this fully God and fully man who is our Christ, there's a war going on. And we need to acknowledge that war. We need to see the war and we need to ask why is it there and what do we do in response. And so, first off, we we see them last week. It says that they were leaving the upper room and they began to have that conversation on the road. Maybe a 15, 20-minute walk or a small hike up the Mount of Olives. And Luke says that this was his tradition. Apparently, Jesus had this deal where at the Passover, he would always go up on the Mount of Olives and spend time. It says it was his way. And so he was doing this with his disciples. We saw on the way last week, they had a pretty deep conversation, you know, just on that hike. And he uh, confronted Peter about some things that were going to occur. And we, we looked at how that played out. But in this place, we find them landing at a place called Gethsemane, which is interesting. It's on the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane literally meaning olive press. Like, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, in this part of the world, olive oil to them is like butter uh, for us. You know, maybe not for you, but in the South, it's like butter. It's, it's in everything. Like the best biscuits, they're going to have butter. They, they have to. Um, you know, the best scrambled eggs, they're going to have butter, or they better. Don't scramble your eggs in olive oil and invite me to eat. That's just wrong. Um, I'm slowly teaching my daughter how to fry the perfect egg. Like, it's something that I can impart to her. And one thing that I teach her is you need two things to fry the perfect egg other than an egg. You need heat and you need butter. You need those two things in sufficient amounts in both. But either way, like for them, olive oil was incredibly necessary. They used it in religious ceremonies to anoint. Uh, They used it to cook. They used it to preserve. They used it for, for everything. And in this particular place called Gethsemane was this place in which they would take olives, put them in this large, uh, you know, a rock-hewn bowl, and then they would crush them. And out of those olives would flow that olive oil. The flesh of those olives would be pulverized, crushed, and what would come out would be the stuff that they would need to do everything with. Now, accidental symbolism, no, very literal. This is what we see Jesus beginning to endure now. The crushing to be emptied so that life could occur. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't fun. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't a robot who was just walking through there without an understanding of the consequences, but also the victory that lay at hand. It was crushing and hard. 
And that's the reason we see words in here that we see expressing Jesus' emotion that are not normal, that are not the things that we're used to seeing. We see distressed, we see troubled, we see sorrowful. And we see him confessing these things in a place called Gethsemane. So again, he, he goes to the place called Gethsemane, which literally means olive press, to be pressed and released of all of those things. He took with him Peter, James, and John. He left the remaining disciples a little on the outside, and then he walked a little further, taking his three. Remember, we, we talk about discipleship, how it occurs within the masses, the many, and then the twelve, or the eleven in this case, most likely, and then the few. He took the few. Same way he took them up the mountain. Maybe he wanted them to see. Maybe he trusted their prayers. Maybe he required them to be with him. But either way, he took the few. And it says, he walked into Gethsemane, had some sit, and sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he even said to them in verse 34, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Literally just remain here. Stay awake. He's already given them instructions. Just Stay awake and pray. That's why I brought you here. Stay awake and pray. I'm going to go a little further. So he, he goes a little further, verse 35, and he fell on the ground or he fell on his face, according to Matthew, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said to him, Abba, Father, which is almost like this intimate expression of Daddy whom I respect with all the respect that I can muster, all things are possible from you. Remove this cup from me. Before we get to the next phrase, like whether you've read it, whether you've heard it, whether you've asked the question or not, he's literally saying, Daddy, if there's another way, show that to me now. Jesus had divine foreknowledge. There were times in which we see in Scripture that he willingly chose, now this will break your brain, he willingly chose not to know things in certain circumstances, but in this place apparently that divine foreknowledge was in him and a part of him and he knew what was coming. He knew that just like in the place that he was standing, crushed olives to release that oil that was so necessary, he knew that soon, even if not now, the crushing was about to begin. The weight was going to be squarely placed on him. The wrath of God was going to be poured out on him for your sin, for my sin, but none of which that he ever committed. And he would be emptied of the very life that he possessed so that you and I might be bound to God for eternity. He knew it was coming. And in that moment, he just cried out to his father on his face, Daddy, if there's a way, if there's a way, just, just show it to me now. Because he knew what was coming was bad, and it was crushing, and it would ultimately empty him of his very life. I do think it's important and interesting to note that he never once said scared or frightened. He said sorrowful, distressed, deeply troubled. I think he saw the pain, I think he saw the anguish, I think he saw those things that were coming that would physically crush him, but I think he saw the otherwise as well. I think he saw the otherwise as well. 1 Peter 2.24 tells us that he actually bore our sins on himself, on the cross. The weight of us, the penalty that should rest on us was placed on him and he carried them to bear something to have borne something would mean that it was placed on him. He would carry that, and he would be punished for it, for no wrongdoing in himself, but all of mine, all of yours. And not only would physical death come, but for a while, for the only time, this strange place in history, for just 
a time he would be cut off from the Trinitarian God that he's always, always, eternally been a part of. And it's, it's crazy to think. Like, it's insane to think that, now granted, the Trinity is something that we don't have a good metaphor for. We talked about that in our, our 101 class last week with people that are walking through who we are and what membership looks like. But, like, the, the Trinity is not something that we have a, a good human metaphor for. We just don't. And if we did, it wouldn't be so amazing. But to think of something so intact that it's eternal, God is one, but God is three. And but for a little while, one person would be torn away from that Trinity. That's what's occurring. Sorrow, distress, trouble is coming. Jesus sees it. He knows it's coming, knows it's entirely necessary, but it's coming. And he says, if this cup or if your wrath can pass from me, let it happen. The cup was always synonymous with wrath that would be poured out from divinity, from God himself. Uh, We see it starting in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Lamentations and other places. We see it also in the book of Revelation of just in this cup was wrath that was poured out on those who deserved it. Jesus knew it was coming for him, even though he had never done a single wrong. And he just said, in his flesh and in his divinity, if there's another way, if there's another way, Dad, show me now. Show me now. Robot, he was not. God, he fully was. Man, he fully was. And at this moment, the impending doom, the impending doom was weighing heavily on him. And I truly believe that from a theological perspective, in just a moment, I don't believe that it was just impending doom that would begin to weigh heavily on him. I believe that this is the moment in which my sin, your sin, was actually placed on the person and presence of Jesus. The weight that he would bear that would ultimately crush him for you, for me, I think it was about to be placed squarely on Jesus. So after, Daddy, with all respect that I can muster, all things are possible for you, remove this cup from me, he said, but not what I want, but what you want. The resolve, the resolve in the face of just just something we can't even fathom, paying a price that we can't even calculate the, the, the pain and the, the, the just, oh, the agony of. He says, I see that. I know it's coming. But at the end of it, not what I want, but what you want. The resolve to be obedient in the face of agony. Clearly divine. So he prayed the first time on his face with his three just a little ways behind him, and then the remaining eight, most likely a little further away, and it says in verse 37, and he said, he came and he found them sleeping. Now, they were sleeping because it had been quite a day. You know, whether this was midnight or, or whether this was 3 a.m., we, we don't exactly know, but we know that their day had been full. Like, since they came into Jerusalem, since they had Jesus' triumph and entry and all of those things, like, things haven't slowed down. They haven't stopped. It's been full. And so he finds them in the dark, and he says, hey, sit here and pray for a little while. And he comes in, and they're, they're asleep. They're asleep. How many times have you set out? Like, just, just simple. How many times have you set out at night? I'm, I'm going to pray when I lay down at night in bed. I've done it thousands upon thousands of times. And the next thing I know, my brain is wandering, and I'm off in la-la land. You know, it's kind of that sleep-wake state, but I'm trying to pray, and I'm thinking about puppies or something like that. I'm not praying anymore because I'm like half asleep. Have you ever been there? Been there a lot. 
Sometimes it's the best way to fall asleep. But can imagine, like, after the end of several really vicious, you know, running hard kind of a days, and Jesus sets you down in a beautiful, idyllic garden after a little hike and after a big meal, and he says, sit here, stay awake and pray, and he comes and he finds them asleep. And he says, Simon, Barjona, or Simon, son of John, are you asleep? Could you not watch or stay awake just, just one hour? Just an hour. And then he says something very telling. He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He wasn't talking about Peter at this moment. He was talking about himself. The spirit, fully God, is willing, but the flesh, fully man, is weak. There's a temptation to flee. The man said, the man's side said, I, I don't want to be here. I don't want this to happen. I want to go. But God's side says, you must stay. You must stay. So he tells the disciples, if this is going on in me, it's very likely that it's going on in you. Stay awake so that you don't succumb to temptation and pray. Verse 39, it says, and again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same words, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. When we read Matthew and we read Luke, he's saying the same idea, but there's a little bit more resolve in there almost. Matthew records his other words, and, and he almost removes that idea of if there's another way, he basically just says, what you want is what I'm going to do, speaking to God the Father. In verse 40, and it says again, he found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. They were so sleepy, they were so worn out. I believe they were trying, but they just couldn't do it. They didn't even know what to say when he said, are you still asleep? <laughs> they, they didn't have a response. In verse 41, it says he came a third time, because after he had gone away a third time and prayed again, he said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The time is now. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Then in verse 42, he says, get up, arise, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. Not metaphorical. Where he was standing... He could have very likely seen Judas and the men with clubs and everything walking up the trail with their torches. And he said, get up. He's coming. And the other gospels say, let us meet them on their way. Whew. Crazy. <laughs> I mean, just not normal. Like the whole thing that we've seen from the very beginning is like Jesus is completely other than, right? Like he's not just a prophet. He's not just a very wise person. He's not just someone that had good answers at the right time, but he is so completely other than, so completely more than, so completely out of this world, so completely God that it just baffles our imaginations and our understandings. At one point, he's like, this wrath is coming. It's about to be poured out on me. I don't want it, but God, whatever you want, that is what I'll do. He says it three times. And then at the end, like he knows that someone's going to betray him and he stands up and he looks and they're coming up the path and he tells his disciples, he's like, let's get up. Let's meet them on their way. Let's not make them walk any further. Let's, let's go. Super popular phrase right now. I don't know where it's come from, but you hear it all the time. Let's go. I mean, that was kind of Jesus in this moment. Let's go. Let's go. I would have run. I'll be honest. I would have run. I would have said, let's go 
the other way. Let's go over the mountain and down the backside through the valley and, and all the dale and all of those things, whatever a dale is, but let's go through that because I don't want what's coming. But he said, get up. You can sleep later. It's time. It's time. Let's meet them on their way. That's not normal. For no gain of his own. For many people to even, like, the foreknowledge that must have rested in Jesus to know that this was coming also must have informed him that many people would say that it never happened. Through eternity. That it didn't matter. It was insignificant. He was just a prophet. He saw that too. And he still said, let's go. Let's meet them on their way. And he still said, not what I want, but what you want. Three times. To see all the things that were coming. Like, he, he knew it all. Luke gives us some more details. That's the reason I say it's great to read from different perspectives, all telling the same story, maybe from sitting in different chairs. In Luke, it says that there was an angel tending to his needs right now. There was an angel here taking care of him because he was literally being crushed. And this is the reason I say, and I'm, I'm not going to write a paper or submit it for publish, that I believe the weight of my sin was being placed on him. He was suffering from something called hematidrosis in this moment. Because in Luke it says that he was sweating like great drops of blood. Capillaries were rupturing in his scalp and he was sweating and his sweat was mingling with blood and coming down off of him. He was being crushed and emptied already. Hebrews tells us that there's no forgiveness of sin or remission of sin without the shedding of blood. It began now. It wasn't complete now. It wasn't fully there now. But I do believe that it was beginning now in this place, in this time. I believe that my sin was being placed on this new scapegoat, this new Passover lamb. And his blood was being emptied as we speak. And all he could say was, not what I want, but what you want. Not what I want, what you want. Not what I want, what you want. The time is here. Let's meet them on their way. Crazy. To willingly be crushed. For those who would believe, but even those who would deny him. To die for all sufficiently, but only efficient for those who believe, like, whew, makes no sense. Praise God, it makes zero sense. So it must be true. <laughs> so, what do we do? What do we do with this calm before the storm that's really not? Well, I think the first is that we know and we understand and we believe that Jesus was crushed on our behalf. We have to really, we have to know that for salvific purposes so that we can be united with him for eternity. But we need to know it on a daily basis because it affects how then we should live. That he was crushed for me, crushed for you. And he did it willingly. Like Philippians tells us that, that he willingly loosened or canoeed, let go of parts of his divinity and was obedient, even obedient to the point of death. Like he was obeying and being obedient to God the Father who asked him to go and die on our behalf. He was crushed for you, for me. We have to know it. Hebrews 9.22, which we've already referenced, is just... A reminder that indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. If Jesus had not been crushed and emptied of all of the things that gave him physical life, our sins in effect would still be our sins and totally held against us no matter how good we were. 
how many boxes we checked. But he was emptied because he was crushed. And because of that blood, we, if we just believe, which is a thick word, our sins can be wiped away, past, present, and future. He was crushed and emptied for me, for you, for us. Hmm. Galatians 3.13 takes it a little bit further, but not only was he crushed, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for, for us. It was written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Not only did he allow himself to be crushed and emptied, but he allowed himself to be cursed because we couldn't possibly live out the law. It wasn't in us. And so he said, I will. And then I'll die for those who couldn't. It's crazy. But it's the gospel. It's crazy, but it's the gospel. So I think we need to know that it's true and that it happened. And we have to believe in it like our eternity depends on it because it does. But our now depends on it too. Like I think one version of the gospel that we've believed, we believe that the payout is eternity with God that only begins once we die or once he's called us back up at his return. But our eternity begins the moment that we enter into that covenant relationship by grace through faith with him. Like we have to believe that for the now so that we can have victory in the now. To live in the face of sin, to live in the face of adversity, to live in the face of defeat, we have to know that he was cursed and crushed for us now. Not just for when we get to spend eternity with him in heaven or new heaven, new earth, as it ultimately will be, but even for the now. And we have to know that that crushing was not to no avail, but that crushing was so that we could have victory that we didn't earn, that we didn't facilitate, but only he could. And it's not fair. Like, let me, be, let me be honest and say it. It's not fair that someone else had to die for my transgressions. It's not. Like, we want to talk about fairness all the time, and if we want to use fairness as an excuse to believe in God or not to believe in God, the problem is, on that fairness scale, this will never be fair. It will never, ever be fair. There will never be an equitable solution to my sin and Jesus' death. Why? Because an equitable solution would have never worked. It had to be a divine solution in the form of a God taking on the form of man, walking amongst us, living perfectly in the face of temptation and dying a death that I deserve, that you deserve, that we deserve. Instead, he said, I will be crushed on their behalf. It's not equitable. It's not fair. It doesn't make sense, but it is the truth and the hope of the gospel, and we must know it. We must hold fast to it and believe it every single day of the rest of our eternities. Not so that our salvation won't leave us and flee from us because it won't, but because it's so true and it's so valid and it's so pertinent and it does affect every single cell of my living. How I love, how I respond, how I give, how I care, how I fail, how I succeed, every bit of it is affected as to whether or not or by whether or not I believe and know that he was crushed on my behalf. We have to know. And I think in light of that knowing, the second thing that we need to be is we need to be incredibly grateful. And you say, well, that sounds very simple. It does, but we're also very bad at it. We're very bad at it. 
I would tell young couples who are entering into marriage, and marriage is a great parallel to what it looks like to follow Jesus, even if it falls short, two things that we need to learn to say within marriage. Number one is, I'm sorry, and number two, thank you. Like, we need to learn how to confess and repent. Obviously, the gospel depends upon that, but in light of the gospel, in light of the fact of knowing that he was crushed on our behalf, we need to say thank you frequently. Be grateful frequently as often as we remember that he was crushed on our behalf. We need to say thank you for being crushed on my behalf. I don't deserve you. I don't deserve you. But thank you that you love me more than what I deserve. That's mercy. Jesus loving us more than what we deserve. Because what we deserve, even in reference to one sin, one falling short of the glory of God, which we've fallen more than once, is eternal separation. Again, not equitable, not fair. Grace, mercy on display in the person, the life, the death, the work in Jesus. As often as we remember, we say thank you. And that may mean that some days you say thank you a lot. Some days you say thank you once. But I would dare say as often as we pray, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on my behalf. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me way more than I deserve. Thank you, Jesus, for being crushed, because my crushing would do nothing. 2 Corinthians 5.21, just another reminder, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the righteousness, the right yes, the right actions of God, the good works of God, like He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus had never done any wrong. Temptation was there at the door, crouching to devour him. He resisted every single time. Temptation's beyond what we can understand. Scripture says he was never tempted in a way that that we weren't. Like he's endured all of them and probably more. But he never succumbed. He never gave in. He didn't walk away. In this moment, even when it would have been more comfortable and fair to run away, he stayed and repeated three times. Not what I want, but what you want. Not what I want, but what you want. Not what I want, but what you want. You being God the Father, whom he was obedient even to the point of death to. He became sin. He bore my sin, even though he had none of his own. So that we might become the righteousness of God. The hands, the feet, the good works, the loving arms, the loving voice, the redemptive story of God can be uttered through our mouth. He was crushed. We need to know. We need to be grateful. And then third, it's what we know. It's how we feel. And then it's something that we do. The third, I think, and this is hard, we imitate him as often and as frequently as possible. Like in this particular text, like there's a lot. Like everything that we've read, the way that he loved people, the way that he responded, yes, imitate that. But in deference to this text in particular, Like, we will never be asked, like, I can say this with great certainty, we will never be asked to die for the sins of all mankind. It won't happen. It won't happen. But we will be asked to do many things in our following of Jesus and in our uh, submission to God. There will be times in which we're asked to do many things. And the same temptation that sat in front of Jesus to run, to flee, to take it my way instead of his, that temptation will be there for us almost daily. As a matter of fact, I think that's probably our biggest temptation. Let, let me do it my way. Let me just do it my way. I understand. I'm here. It's, it's my shoes that are in my feet. My feet that are in my shoes, not my shoes that are in my feet, but my feet that are in my shoes. God, I understand. I, I know. 
I'm a part of this story. It's mine. Let, Let me do it my way. That temptation will be there every single day. Whether God's asking us to do something small or asking us to do something big, the same temptation to say my way instead of yours will always, always, always be there. But again, even in this big moment, what we see Jesus doing is like, not, not what I want, but what you want. That's what I'll do. We need to imitate that. Now, granted, apart from the spirit that gets to come and live inside of us as a seal of our salvation, as a gift from God to guide us, to direct us, to convict us, to sanctify us, we wouldn't be able to do that on a daily basis. Like, there's no way for us to imitate the life, the death, the works, and the very words of Jesus without the Spirit of God living in us. So that's the reason we must know, we must be thankful, must do all of those things that are commensurate to the gospel, live as you were called, kind of an idea. Like, we have to do all of those things so that we may do this, imitate Jesus. And when the temptation is there to say, do it your way instead of God's, we choose Jesus. We know, we're thankful, we imitate when the temptation is there to run, because it was there. The temptation was there, I can assure you. Run. The temptation was there to say, any other way than be crushed, take that. Take that. Go over the other side of the mountain, through the hill, through the valley, through the dale, anything. Take that. But he didn't. Imitate Jesus. Obedience and sacrifice will always be before us. And we have the option to say, yet not what I want, but what you want. Remember Jesus and what he saved us from, but what he saved us to. What he saved us from, but what he saved us to. He saved us from the eternal consequences of my sin, and he saved us to a place in which we can know him, be known by him, and make him known, be the righteousness of God. And if we're going to do that, We need to do it like Jesus did it. I think he gave some some pretty interesting advice in this moment when he was speaking to Peter. He just said, stay awake and pray. Stay awake and pray. Like, it can't be that simple. Sometimes I think it is. We can attach a huge, long list of ways that, that we need to be God's people that we need to live on mission. But I think here he just says, look, be observant. Keep your eyes open. Pay attention and pray. And pray is not just my laundry list of things to God, but it's this idea that I get to talk to him. I get to hear from him. I get to have a relationship that yields communication with God the Father. And as strange as that is, again, not fair, not equitable. It's a result of grace that I get to even speak to God, much less hear from God, through his word, through his people, through the spirit that indwells in me. But he says, look, stay awake, be vigilant, pay attention, talk to me and listen for me. Talk to me and listen. Because temptation is there. The desire for your way over God's is there. The desire to run instead of faithfully be obedient is there. He says, stay awake. Pay attention. Talk to me and listen for me. Could it be that simple? I think for a lot of us, 
at one time or another, and I, I think Neil and I even had this conversation this week, some days this seems so impossible. It does. Like, it should. Like, if I wrote this down on a whiteboard, it's not the way I would do it. It's, it, it can't be that somebody died for me because I couldn't do it for myself. There's no other area or realm of life in which that would make sense. But in this realm, and in this area, in this eternity, it's entirely true. We have to know it. We have to know just that to a degree, that it's just Jesus. Not my works, not my goodness, because I don't have enough of those. But he did, and he does. And it's in those that we can know God, be known by God, and make him known. Man, when was the last time you just said, thank you, Jesus, for dying on my behalf? Literally, like those words, exactly. I very rarely will put words in your mouth. But when was the last time I, we, you, us, just said, thank you, Jesus, for dying for me? Maybe we get so far past that salvation event that we forget we don't need to forget. Maybe, maybe to now, maybe to now, tonight, in the now, sorry, the, the to now. That's the, the moment of today. Maybe before we, we do anything else, maybe we just, you just need to take a moment. Say, Jesus, I know you were crushed for me. Thank you. Maybe just right there. So I'm going to do it, and then you can. God. makes no sense that your son would bear my shame and be crushed on my behalf, but I know that he was. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you, Jesus.